Welcome again, everyone. My name is Tom Funk, and thanks for joining me on Trail Tales. This is part of my segment on hiking across Michigan's Upper Peninsula back in the summer of 1998. And I'm currently finishing up in the Pictured Rocks. I'm going to be heading into the small burb of Grand Marais. So let's uh, get geared up and let's hit the trail. So today is August 14th, 1998, starting at Seven Mile, which is a backcountry campsite in Pitched Rocks, and I'm going to end up spending the night at Woodland Beach in Grand Marais. I'm hiking 18.2 miles today for a trip total of 314.8, and I experienced some pretty bad stable flies uh, during the day. Weather high 75, low 60, approaching storms, rain, then clearing, then becoming very, very windy. Trail conditions, sand, some roots, a few gravel roads, and uh, maybe even a grass field or two. As the leaves of the trees are said to absorb all the noxious qualities of the air and to breathe forth a pure atmosphere, so it seems to me as if they drew from us all sordid and angry passions and breathe forth peace and philanthropy. There is a severe and settled majesty in a woodland scenery that enters into the soul and dilates, elevates it, and fills it with noble inclinations. Washington Irving, an American writer. Arouse around seven, I hear the distant roar of an impending storm. Currently, the wind is out of the southeast and the clouds are moving towards the east. Peeking out from under my bivouac is completely cloudy, but it is not raining. The approaching storm is offshore and is only a matter of time before it reaches land. I have to make it to Moss Homestead, 11 and a half miles away, to keep on schedule. If it starts to rain before I'm ready to hike, I'll be stranded here only to wait out the storm until noon at the latest. If I get started and it starts to rain later, at least I am on my way and I can always set up a bivouac if the weather is too inclement. I decide to get an early start, move on, and shoot to be out of camp by 8 a.m. I quickly break camp. I cook a quiet uh, breakfast of oatmeal and hot cocoa. The beatnik in his teens, well, they were dead to the world. And I still don't know how it would take nine hours to walk five miles, but it did. And they appear to be very tired. Good morning, Tom, says Cheryl, and Damien is in tow. We're going to hike back towards Munising, but thanks for the offer, says Damien. Too bad. I would have enjoyed their company. I'd like to offer you a solution to your backpack problems if you're willing to make a concession, he says, with a salesman gleam in his eye. Okay, I say. I have an extra nylon strap with a buckle that you can lash around your stabilizer bar, and I'll trade you for some duct tape, he says. <laughs> Deal, I say. Little does he know I have two stashes of duct tape. I pull out the bigger of the two stashes and toss it to him. He runs back and comes forward with a purplish strap about three feet in length with a buckle. Thanks, I say. I tie a loop on the buckled end and slide over the stabilizer bar to the point where the hip belt is supposed to attach. Then I cinch that end and wrap the remaining around the hip head, tying a knot. There, good as new, I say, and the hip belt is stable again. Sleeping amazingly well last night, the darkness never sent forth a sound loud enough to spook me. Therefore, I feel invigorated, well-rested, and I leave camp around 8, and I start to cruise towards Grand Marais. 
My first encounter was with a couple staring at a sign directing them south to Kingston Lake on the Fox River Pathway. My second encounter was with humans at 12 Mile Beach Campground. They are the trails on gravel road comprising the campground driveway, presenting itself an interpretive booth complete with drinking fountain. I take my first break there about 2.9 miles into my day. The darkness, well, continues to cover my journey, although it has yet begun to rain. This campground is accessible by motor vehicles, and there are plenty of RVs, SUVs, and station wagons. Although not a modern campground, it attracts many and is obviously full. Looking around, these folks seem not to gawk at my presence, probably appreciating my efforts. Or are they just jaded by all the backpackers? I'm standing at the interpreter booth, and I'm looking at the maps, and I greet two men and four boys, all donning backpacks. Good morning, I say. Morning, says the man. The other five are behind him. They're getting their bearings with the map, and they're just starting their day, not having any sweat on their brows. Where are you headed, they say. Moss Homestead, I reply. You know there's no water there. <laughs> yes, I know, I say, adjusting my pack. Something wrong with your pack? I see you have it lashed to go with that strap. Yeah, the nylon stitching came undone while, a while back, I say. What kind of pack is it? Well, it's a Jansport, but I'm not exactly sure of the model. Remind me not to get that brand next time I buy a pack, he says. Like he's a knower of all when it comes to equipment. I'm defensive, sick of the know-it-all attitude, and I've put up with this so far at this national park. Um, you know, this attitude should not be present. Therefore, I lash back. Hey, this pack is giving me many enjoyable days in some very remote areas. I'm very hard on this pack, and for as long as I've been out, I'm not complaining. So give me and my pack a break, I snip, defending our honor. This pack is my friend. And, you fucktard, what was that all about getting off on my equipment? All of a sudden, he takes a very polite tone. How long have you been out, he asks. This is day number 27, I say. I started in Ironwood, and I plan on this pack making all the way to St. Ignis, where I plan on finishing, I proudly declare. Take that, you pretentious snob. Oh, wow, some trip, the other man says, realizing that his buddy just found out what his fancy boost tastes like. I start walking again, and I think about the first time I used this backpack. It was the spring of 1993 when my brother Tim was about to graduate from high school, and he was going to enter the Marine Corps. Therefore, I thought it would be a good idea to take a backpacking trip to see if he had what it takes to be a Marine. With his friend Harold in tow, we drove to Gogebic County to the Sylvania Wilderness Recreation Area, and we backpacked over the Memorial Day weekend. All three of us were novices, this being my first real backpacking trip. We scavenged for food before leaving, collecting oatmeal, pasta, and my brother even commandeered some MREs from his Marine Corps recruiter. Not having confidence in my gas stove, my brother found it necessary to take a Coleman camp stove with him, which weighed about 10 pounds. Talk about overpacking. We camped at the Balsam Campground, finding ourselves fishing and exploring each day. On our second full day, we decided to walk around Clark Lake using a topo map and a compass. Having the basic orienteering skill, skills, well, I read a brochure once, uh, we set out to walk around this lake comprising a whole day and about 12 miles of walking. About two-thirds into our day, both Harold and Timmy were whining about when we would be done. Whipping out the map, I triangulated our current position and located our campsite. See that big rock in the water, I say in a condescending voice. Yeah, they say in unison as they question my map reading ability. 
Our campsite is about 500 feet from it to the north of that rock. <laughs> Whatever, Tom, says my brother. I'll tell you what, I'll make a bet with you. If I'm right, you two knuckleheads will cook all the meals for the rest of the trip. If I'm wrong, I will. That was too good of a bet for them to turn down. Deal, they say, we all shake hands. A few hours later, we're back at our site and about 500 feet from the aforementioned rock. Of course, they were cooking for me. I forge on walking out of the campground back onto the trail. About a mile later, I reach H58 in all its sandy glory. It's in good condition today. Surely my escort can make it on this precarious road. Being passed by vehicles every five inches or so dawns on me. I'm walking into traffic. Everyone sees me driving too fast on this road. I do not see a speed limit sign, but I know I wouldn't be doing faster than 35 miles an hour on this messy road. On this stretch, I see a small cabin on my right in the woods. In a chair sits a ranger reading a paper outside in a rocking chair. <laughs> what a life. Here comes an SUV, Chevy Blazer, going way too fast right at me. I sidestep to the edge of the road and put my arms out with a downward motion and mouth slow down to the oncoming vehicle. And driving is a fully clad park ranger. Great, just pissed off a ranger, I say to myself. Probably going to stop and write me a ticket. Instead, he waves, slows down, and turns where the cabin is now, about a quarter mile behind me. Five minutes later, he drives by, coming up from behind. This time, he has the other ranger that was reading his paper as his passenger. They both wave at me, at me as, I, as they pass by. I, of course, wave back. By noon, I have arrived at the Aw-Sobble Point, where there is a lighthouse. The only means of reaching this century of past years is by walking from the adjacent Hurricane River campground, which is accessible by cars, but you walk a mile-long trail up to the lighthouse, which is only accessible by foot. Doing so weeds out the riffraff, although I do encounter numerous people walking to and from the point. Walking 8.2 miles in 3 hours, that's a 2.7 mile an hour clip, which is damn good for me. I'm happy at 2 miles an hour. I see a sign. It says, Interpreter-led tours meet here and attaches a list of times. 12, 12, 31, 2, 2, 30, and a clipboard to sign up. The tours were there for the lighthouse, and they, the lighthouse was built in 1875. I decided to eat lunch and signed up for the 1230 tour. I walked down to the beach to an outbuilding to eat lunch. The stable flies, and man, how they bite. Ouch! They're at an all-time high. I'm wearing pants, long sleeves, and a hat with an old t-shirt ripped over to cover my ears and neck. And this pretty much covers me and protects me from these voracious biting flies. The flies land on me but are unable to penetrate the nylon barrier protecting my delicate skin. I'm sitting there, I'm eating, minding my own business, and a woman walks up to me swatting at the flies. Excuse me, sir, but I know you're not bothered by the flies. What's your secret? I sit there chewing on my food and I check out the chubby woman who resembles a bowling ball. She's wearing green shorts, a striped sleeveless t-shirt, sandals, and no hat. She's obviously in discomfort, swatting at these beasts. This scene reminds me of Hitchcock's The Birds, but instead we have flies. I respond, ma'am, you need to put some clothes on, I say, and take, and take another bite of some crackers. Huh, she says, swatting. Clothes, cover yourself in clothes. Bite that they flies, they can't bite through the clothes. See? And I... Point at my pants covering my legs. They land, but they can't bite me. Oh, 
she says, and waddles off. I wonder if she'll heed my advice. I finish my lunch, and I look to the southeast. There's those dark clouds again. They drape over the horizon, and thunderous moaning rolls towards shore. Carrying my pack over to the lighthouse, I put my visqueen over it just in case it does rain. Take the tour all the way to the top of the lighthouse where I get to see my very first Frenzel lens. These lenses have a light source in the center of a precisely cut and arranged glass that magnifies the light emitted upwards to one million candle power. Warning sailors of shallow water at this point, evidence of those that did not heed the warning can be found emerging from, a, from the six-foot-deep water that extends out one mile from shore. Completely isolated from civilization, the residents of this particular lighthouse had to raise their own food and rely on occasional shipments that arrived on Lake Superior via cargo ship. The biggest threat wasn't from impending storms or ice, but forest fire. The main job of the keeper was to keep the brush at a safe distance. In fact, if there was a fire, everyone could climb into the lighthouse tower and close the fireproof hatch for safety. The Coast Guard has automated this station with halogen lights. When a light burns out, the mechanism automatically rotates and provides a new light to burn for months at a time. The Coast Guard visits the station and changes the burnt bulbs once a year. I complete the tour, step onto the porch, and it starts to rain. Finally! On the porch, waiting for the 2 o'clock tour as a family from Ohio, we strike up a conversation lasting as long as it will rain, or 2 o'clock, whichever comes first. As soon as they hear I'm a thru-hiker using the North Country Trail, the questions start. The family consists of mom, dad, and two daughters, one a junior in college, and the other is an entering freshman. Thrilled by my adventure, my tales ended at two as the tour started and the rain subsided, and I placed my gear on my back again. Putting a backpack on is not an easy undertaking. Preferring to set the frame on an object about three feet off the ground, I can let the weight of the pack be on the object. Otherwise, I have to contort one arm through a shoulder strap, thrust the pack upwards, and threading the other arm through the second strap while the pack is in motion. At this point, the pack is just dangling from my shoulders, which are feeling an enormous strain by this point. Grasping my hip belt, one strap in each hand, I quickly buckle it together. Then grabbing the hip pads, I position them in my waist the proper manner, usually between my fat rolls and my actual hips. With a mighty cinch, I suck in my gut and pull tight the hip belt. Now the pack is leaning away from my back, and I pull each shoulder strap to tighten the load against my body. A center small chest strap is clicked into place. This whole process takes a couple minutes. Ready to go, I walk off into the woods towards log slide. Immediately, I'm in the midst of an expansive hardwood hemlock forest, and the trail seems to be an old road. Memory serves me right, Picture Rock used to be a state park and was turned over to the National Park Service in the 1960s. This road I'm walking on is now part of the North Country Trail and Lakeshore Trail. It's wide, flat, and straight, and even my escort can traverse down this straight and narrow path. To my left is the forest played out on flat, sandy soil, and on my right is a hill that is getting ever and ever higher. I continue on flat ground, then the hill on my right wraps around in front of me, Climbing the sandy beach to reach the top, I am sure to find a parking lot to accommodate cars to view log slide. Starting my ascent, slowly trudging along, I look at the menacing sky. It looks like it can open up at any second. I suck down some needed water, realizing that I'm on my last two quarts. 
shit, I hope I can get some water at Logside because I know there's none at my campsite and I don't know of any bodies of water other than Lake Superior in the area. Upon the climax, I'm walking through undercover that is mostly of the three-leafed let-it-be type. Yes, we're talking about poison ivy. I have a moderate tolerance for this member of the cashew family, but I must have a ballerina-like gait to avoid getting uh, Urshal, the oil that makes you itch, on any part of my skin. Looking down on Gichigumi, the perch dune intersects the massive lake and kisses the sky and caresses the viewer with its spectacular view. On the beach, 300 feet below, a father and his son are frolicking. Catching my breath, I snap a quick picture. Click. Pondering my water situation, I can climb down to Lake Superior, load up on water, and climb all the way back up and continue. Doing so, I'll exert an enormous amount of energy coming up and use water along the way. In addition, this would take at least two hours. I can go to Moss and tough it out, but I'm certain I would run out of water. Hoping there's some water at Logside, and if there isn't, I can set up camp and run to Grand Sable Lake, which is about a mile away, two miles round trip. Decisions, decisions. Count, counting the decisions. And I continue to enjoy watching the father and son. I see a hawk flying along the ridge of the dune and then land into a tree. Keer is his call. Thinking. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk the log slide and hope for water. If no water, go to Moss, then walk to Grand Sable Lake and load up and walk back. No big deal. I successfully maneuver the poison ivy, and I reach the parking lot for Log Slide, where there are several cars and persons enjoying the scenery. I've been here numerous times, and it's on the edge of Grand Sable Dunes, which are four square miles of wind-deposited and sand-perched over Lake Superior. Devoid of vegetation, these dunes stretch nearly to Grand Marais. I set my pack down next to the outhouse and walk to the end of the boardwalk overlooking Lake Superior. Good afternoon, says an older man looking down on the beach at the same father-son combination I was enjoying earlier. I'm stuck here until my grandson and son come back up. Stupid bastards, I told them not to go down there. They'll never get back up here, he says in sort of a redneck tone. I thought going down there to get water, but it's too much work. I probably should have done so because I was relying on water here and there is none, I say to the man. I am now down to my last pint. Well, if you want water, I got some, he says, pointing back to the parking lot. Oh, no, I couldn't, I say. Backpackers are responsible for their own water. No sharing. You have to be prepared. I should have loaded up earlier, but I did not. I should pay for my mistake. Well, I don't need as much as you do. Seriously, come with me. And he leads me to his truck. Oh, boy, he carries water with them. When I go camping, I have a two-gallon container that goes everywhere with me. He opens up his cap of the truck bed, pulls out a half-full Gatorade bottle. That's it? Here you go, drink up, he says, proud to lend me a hand. I expected a water buffalo, and I got less than a pint. But every drop is precious. I drink up, and I profusely thank the man. I return his bottle, and a woman in the next car over walks up to me and hands me an 8-ounce bottle of water. Here, I heard you're low on water, she says, and hands me a Dannon water bottle. I don't think these guys realize how much water I go through a day, but I'm grateful, and you should not look a gift horse in the mouth. Uh, this should be enough water to get me to Grand Sable Lake. Thank you, ma'am. I really appreciate it. And I walk over to grab my pack, leaning up against the outhouse. Maybe I shouldn't badmouth the humans. The timing could not be better. It starts to rain. Not 
as hard or as long as I've experienced in the past, but it is raining hard enough that if I was walking, I would have to stop and put on my rain wear. While standing there, waiting for the rain to subside, I see a large white sign across from me entitled, Your Park Fees at Work, detailing using the $50,000 in user fees collected from backpackers the sign is indicating that the park will expand the parking lot, pave it, put in flush toilets, and interpretive signage. Realizing that it's my user fees, you know, backpackers, we're the only group that pays user fees in this park. And they're collecting money from us to subsidize these Turons parking lots and toilets? Well, that ain't right. Well, I'm now outraged, and I can only stand there in disgust, breathing the fumes provided by an outhouse. I'm the one paying these fees. What am I going to get out of it? What about some trail maintenance? More water pumps? Better signage? More rangers to keep the tourists off the trails? The National Park is collecting about 150 grand from 2.5% of their visitors to subsidize 97.5% that cause all the problems. It's the Turons littering, interfering with wildlife, and defacing the natural features. Collect user fees from them for crying out loud. Collecting user fees from visitors of national parks has always been a contentious topic. Our first national park is Yellowstone, and it was de dedicated in 1872. In 1998, we were up to 54 national parks, 321 other park units, such as this National Lakeshore. The National Parks Service Act of 1916 was enacted to, quote, conserve the scenery and natural and historic objects and the wildlife they are in, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same number, manner and by such means as will leave them impaired for the enjoyment of future generations. After reading this mission statement, I wonder, what is a national park for? Currently, over 250 million people visit our over-visited national parks. Most will say we have a people problem, too many people making negative impacts on our precious parks. I agree in part, but I feel strongly we also have an automobile problem. I see national parks should move towards ridding themselves of extorting backpacker user fees for more parking lots. Have the majority of parks free of roads and parking lots having lazy suburbanites leave their cars behind and set off on foot to enter a whole new experience. Still steaming mad, I wait out the storm for about 45 minutes under the scant shelter provided by the reeking outhouse. The rain subsides, and I continue to forge on. It's approximately 3.30, and I'm making extraordinarily good time today. I'm averaging about 2.5 miles an hour, and that is with all the brakes. Again, I'm using an old road that leads me through the stately hardwood forest. On my left are the dunes, and on my right the forest flattens out and extends off into the distance. Surrounded and covered by a canopy of green, which sheds an occasional droplet of water downward. I find my thoughts leading me through the forest once again. I am in a stoic trance. The clang of my cup keeps my body in sync. I am moving along at a steady pace. Mesmerized, however, breaking my trance again is a sign reading Moss Homestead, which is up to the dune to my left. I'm standing there and I evaluate my options, which now are beginning to change again. Being only 4.30 p.m., I still have plenty of daylight, and I'm completely out of water again, and it's an easy decision to walk to Grand Sable Lake to resupply. So I look at my map, and I can't really tell how far away it is. 
Earlier, I thought it would only be a mile or so, but I am using a generic park map, and I cannot be sure. I think I knocked off two miles since log slide, but my trance prevented me from keeping track. In the distance, the rumbling of tires on a washboard in the road. I hear a vehicle, but I cannot see it. H58 is near, and it will eventually run along Grand Sable Lake. Look at my map again, and there's a campground in Grand Marais, Woodland Beach. Should I just forge on? I'm already walking to the small lake. What's an extra few miles? At that point, I decided to skip past Moss Homestead and go for it and make my way to Grand Marais. In a matter of a few hundred yards, the Lakeshore Trail crosses H58 and goes downhill, presumably towards a small lake. I decide to stay on the road, which is certainly going to uh, lead me to water. The woods still surround the gravel strip and me, and we both wind through the forest. I could see some light at the end of the tree-created tunnel. Upon reaching it, the woods give way to an opening surrounding the lake. The gravel turns to asphalt, and the trail comes out of the woods and follows H58. A yellow sign usually reserved to warn drivers of deer or farm implements, this one has a silhouette of a backpacker warning the motorists of our need to walk along the road. Sandwiched between the backside of the dune and Grand Sable Lake. H58 is a paved affair. A few years back, this was a gravel road all the way to Grand Marais, and it's only recently been paved. The pavement does not keep the blowing sand at bay. Instead, the sand will forever try to overtake the road, and only regular road maintenance will tame the advance of this beast. Grand Sable Lake is immediately to my right over a guardrail. Unfortunately, it's a riprap shoreline, and I need to hike to the other end about a mile away to access water. I steadily stare at the water as I walk, imagining quenching my thirst in a matter of 20 minutes. The cool wind is howling out of the southwest, creating one-foot-high waves on the lake. I arrive at the northeast end of the lake where a few humans have dared the waters and are attempting to swim. The beach is covered in pine needles, and I have to slink up to the lake's edge along the riprap to reach a point where there isn't any on the water or beach or any debris at all. This debris has been pushed there by the wind, sticks, leaves, and pine needles. I pump four quarts of water through my filter, and that should sustain me until I reach Woodland Park. Only three quarters of a mile later, at around 5.30, I reach the Grand Sable Visitor Center. Staffed by a gorgeous brunette, my visit here is to buy some postcards, get directions to the next campground, and make a few phone calls. And most importantly, telepark, I made it to my destination. Just in case I don't make it to Grand Marais or hook up with my cousin tomorrow, at least the cavalry will know I made it this far. After making my purchases, phone calls, and checking in, I ask her directions to Woodland Park from the woman. She's in her mid-twenties, and she's just stunning. The trail starts again at the edge of the parking lot and will take you right into the park, she says. Ha! Maybe she'll get done with her shift and visit me later. Yeah, right, whatever. Out the door I go, and I'm back on the trail. Just like that, you take 50 steps into the woods, and you're away from civilization. My first intersection is a sign directing me to the left that says, Dunes! A few hundred feet later, a sign that says, Falls! I walk down the steep stairs to get a glimpse of Sable Falls. Choked with deadfall, the rushing water cannot persuade me to go all the way down, then up to return to the top. Up to this point, the trail is a four-foot-wide affair, easily recognized and marked by the characteristic blue blazes and an occasional North Country trail marker. I continue to my next intersection, which wise into two different uh, trails. 
There's a sign explaining the different ski trails in the area. Marking the trail on the right are blue diamonds, and to the left, nothing, and it appears to be a ski trail. There's a post at the intersection with the North Country Trail marker, but it is not obvious to me which direction that marker should take me. Therefore, I continue to follow the blue diamonds like I have been for 300 miles. Trail goes from a beaten four-foot-wide path to a trickle of a trail through brambles and leaf litter. However, there are the blue diamonds, which turn into blue blazes. And I'm walking through the woods. I can see H58 through the trees about a quarter mile away, and the trail takes a hard right turn directly towards H58. And at the edge of the woods, a culvert with a small footbridge. The tree at the bridge has a blue blaze and leads me to an open field where the trail completely disappears off the face of the earth. Not a single tree to even hold a blue diamond. Perplexed, I pull out my North Country Trail maps. It appears I should have taken H58 from the parking lot to the falls into Grand Marais. So I cross the open expanse back to H58 and start walking on asphalt for the second time today, second time in four days. I reach town and find Woodland Park, which is a large RV campground complete with cable TV hookups. Too tired to check it out, I see a North Country Trail marker at the west end of the park. That is where the trail I lost must have ended, just like the ranger said, at Woodland Park. I check in, flinging my stuff on my site, and stroll to the shower building. I feel and look like I've ridden a large horse all day, hobbling to the shower. I wash my dingy clothes and myself to make a clean entrance into town. Rumor has it, there's a microbrewery in Grand Marais. I get back on H58, and that leads me right to the bay, and I make a T at the intersection. There are North Country Trail markers on telephone poles through town, and there is a microbrewery literally right on the North Country Trail. I am a happy man. The brewery is Lake Superior Brewing Company, and I tried their stout and finished off a meal of nachos along with a few Bell's products. I returned to my campsite as a happy camper, if you will. My crop is full, my clothes are drying, and I am clean, and I have a belly full of good beer, too. All right, so Pitchard Rocks. Uh, when I hiked it, the attendance was about a quarter million. And in the year 2010, they opened up a road, a paved road, that took you between Grand Marais and Munising. Previous to that, it was a nasty road. You had to be pretty brave to take it. So people weren't visiting the interior of the park. Now people are visiting the interior park, and it's a wonderful drive. Um, and what's happened is the attendance has grown from a quarter million to over one million people a year. And with that brings problems. It brings litter. It brings uh, a lot of uh, degradation on trails and things like that. Uh, they finally, in the year 2022, this year, they are uh, charging an entrance fee, uh, which they probably should have done 20 years ago. So now there's an entrance fee uh, to the park. The big problem at, at Picture Rocks is still the automobile problem. They do not have enough parking there, and parking uh, is out of control. You go to some of the trailheads there, and they'll have spots for 30 or 40 cars, and there will literally be two, three, five hundred, one. I've seen days where over a thousand cars at some of these lots, and they stretch for miles, literally miles, up the feeder roads. 
So if you're ever going to Pitchard Rocks and you're going, uh, try to go in the off seasons. Well, sometimes you can't go in the off season. If you have to go in the summer months, get there early. And when I say early, I mean seven o'clock in the morning early. Don't wait until noon, one o'clock to hit the trails because it's just going to be a, a zoo. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, you know, sometimes some places get uh, too popular and uh, they start experiencing problems. And Pitchard Rocks is uh, becoming one of those places. And I'm hoping the national park can get their their arms around. Uh, you know what they need to do, and that is they have to figure out a way to limit the impact, which means limiting people. And I know that's a hard thing for people to deal with because our national parks are supposed to be open. And uh, but we we can't uh, love them to death, and that may be happening at Pitchard Rocks. All right, well, thanks for joining me uh, again on uh, a million steps, my hike across Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Thanks for joining me, and uh, we will see you again. <laughs>